Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on February 26th of 2012 under the headline, Incompetent Opium Smugglers Had Friends in High Places. Here we go. As the new day dawned on the first day of 1893, customs collector Jim Lotan would have told you had you asked that life was good. The previous year had been good to him. After years of working his way up through the ranks in the Republican Party, he'd found himself its state party leader after Senator Joe Simon went to Washington, D.C. to join the Republican National Committee. He'd reached that position just in time to blackmail the city of Portland, which had come cap in hand asking the legislature's permission to borrow 200 grand for the Bull Run Water Project. Lotan wasn't a legislator himself, but he was in a position to set party priorities and he told the city he'd be glad to put their request on the priority list if they would just agree to buy the ramshackle, dilapidated, obsolete Stark Street ferry from him for $50,000. The thing was probably worth about $1,500 at the time. True, the city hadn't leaped right on this generous offer, but Lotan knew it would eventually. It had no choice unless it wanted to continue drinking from the increasingly nasty Willamette River. The previous year had also been the year in which Lotan had landed, through his political maneuverings, a lucrative federal appointment. He'd been named customs collector for the city of Portland. That meant his office was in charge of inspecting incoming steamer traffic, making sure nobody was smuggling drugs or Chinese laborers into the city. Not only did that job pay a fine salary, but it had other benefits for the intrepid Mr. Lotan. It opened up, shall we say, certain extracurricular money-making opportunities. After all, who was better positioned to smuggle opium and Chinese immigrants into the port than the man whose job it was to prevent opium and illegal Chinese immigrants from being smuggled into the port? Yes, 1893 was shaping up to be an excellent year for Jim Lotan. One imagines him sitting back with a fat cigar by the fire at the exclusive plutocrats-only Arlington Club, of which he was a member, and relishing the prospects of the new year. To really exploit the possibilities offered by his new position, he needed to find partners who were discreet, trustworthy, and competent. Partners who could keep their mouths shut. However, instead, Lotan had ended up working with the Merchant Steamship Company, owned by disreputable local wholesale grocers William Dunbar and Nat Blum. As smugglers, the Blum-Dunbar boys were stunningly incompetent. Many of their operations were so bumbling and panicky that they would have made good comedy sketches. Almost as soon as they began their operations, the names of the merchant steamship company's ships, the Wilmington and the Haitian Republic, started appearing regularly in the news columns of the Portland papers. Early in the year, the Portland Evening Telegram revealed that the merchant steamship company had been transferring Chinese immigrants at sea from one ship to another, a dangerous maneuver undertaken to avoid the expense of disinfecting the immigrants' things on arrival. And, as it later turned out, 
to avoid also the customs inspection that would determine that the newcomers were illegal immigrants. Each man was paying the Blum Dunbar gang $120 for this special service. Word then started leaking out about the gang's opium operations, something they undertook with a breathtaking level of ineptitude. Their scheme was this. The Wilmington or Haitian Republic would put into port in Portland. By now they were well known there, so they would be examined closely. Lotan might be a friend, but he could not be seen to be favoring people that everyone knew were smugglers. But that would be okay, because by the time they got inspected, the dope would be long gone. It would have been chucked overboard in barrels a couple miles downriver for other members of the gang to retrieve. Now this might seem like a fairly workable plan, but here's the catch. Apparently they didn't think it important to have a second smuggler stationed at the river to receive the freight. The same guy would load a half a ton of opium in three or four hogshead barrels aboard the Haitian Republic in Victoria or Vancouver and then take the train to Portland hoping to get there in time to retrieve the things from the drink. On several occasions, this did not work out, and gang members had to bribe suspicious farmers and curious riverboat pilots to retrieve it. That summer, Dunbar tried to smuggle some dope into San Francisco in two big steamer trunks, but lost the claim check to one of the trunks. He was followed by two accomplices, one of whom got busted with a full 250 pounds. By the time the thumb-fingered drug runners finally straggled back home to Portland, they discovered someone had stolen 800 more pounds of opium from a gang member's house. Apparently, the word was out on the street. A little later, 1,400 pounds of dope were chucked off the Wilmington and successfully retrieved and hauled to a gang member's house, as they often did in the middle of the night. This evening was special, though, because the gang member's wife had gotten into a feud with one of the neighbors who had been just waiting for them to bring in another big load so she could call the cops on them. Luckily, when she did, she got hold of a friend of Blum's at the police station. So Blum ran down and introduced himself as a detective and took her information and thanked her and told her the authorities were on the job. While he was keeping her busy telling him all about what his gang members had been up to, the gang members themselves were busy loading up a ton and a half of dope and hauling it to someone else's house. Blum's, in fact. This sort of thing, of course, couldn't go on forever. In December 1893, a grand jury handed down indictments against everyone, including Jim Lotan. The charges involved smuggling more than two tons of opium, which was a tiny fraction of what they actually did, and running a human trafficking operation, smuggling undocumented Chinese laborers into Portland. Also indicted was Saeed Back, the most prominent and successful Chinese merchant in the Northwest. Hoping to catch a break, Blum turned state's evidence, was placed on the stand, and started singing. The trial held the city spellbound, but Lotan and Back didn't have much need to worry. The roster of court officers at this trial reads like an excerpt from the Arlington Club directory. Lotan was represented by future Senator Charles W. Fulton, former and future state Senate President and future U.S. Senator Joseph Simon represented another defendant, most outrageously perhaps, federal prosecutor John Guerin, who had just been appointed by President Grover Cleveland as special prosecutor for opium frauds, was in the case of this particular opium fraud on the side of the defense. Also, the judge was one of Simon's former law partners, and the jury foreman was fellow Arlington Club member Charles Ladd. Well, the trial ended with a hung jury. The word on the street was that the vote was 11 to 1, with jury foreman Ladd refusing to convict his friend. A new trial would have to be scheduled. The process dragged on for a couple years. Dunbar fled to China before he could be indicted, 
Blum on the witness stand got so creative in his testimony that by the end of the second trial no one believed him anymore. Eventually, Blum disappeared and the whole thing just sort of faded away. As for Lotan, the resulting bad publicity does seem to have hurt him, but not much. The following year, the city relented and bought the aging, decrepit, increasingly unseaworthy Stark Street Ferry from him for $40,000, still an overpayment on the order of 2,000%. Key sources in this story have included works by E. Kimbark McCall, the Portland Daily Telegraph Archives, and the Portland Oregonian Archives. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But... If you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.